Today we are joined by six experts in the digital humanities who will give lightning round presentations on their institution's use of digital technologies to expand access to their collections. And we will conclude with a question and answer session. Juliet Floyd is professor of philosophy at Boston University, whose research focuses on social, ethical, and, and the philosophical impact of emerging computational technologies on aspects of everyday life. Our neighbor, Jeff Cooper, is director of New England's Hidden Histories, a program of the Congregational Library that seeks to locate and digitize New England's earliest manuscript church records. For 27 years, he served in the history department at Oklahoma State University, and he is the author of Tenacious in Their Liberties, The Congregationalists in Colonial Massachusetts. Uh, Sarah Levitt Goldberg, rather, is an archivist and curator of manuscripts and photographs at Historic Newton. Her most recent exhibit for Historic Newton, Eyes of History, challenged the visitor to consider how their personal histories are being saved or lost in this digital age. Ashley Gray is the archivist for the Handel and Haydn Society and digital projects assistant for the Boston Symphony Orchestra Archives. She holds an MS in Library and Information Sciences from Simmons College and a BA in English from Kenyon College. Meg Winslow is a curator of historical collections at Mount Auburn Cemetery. In addition to her work as steward of the cemetery's multifaceted uh, historical collections, she is trustee of the Association for Gravestone Studies and a fellow of Mass Historical Society, where she also serves on the collections committee. And my dear colleague, Mary Warnerman, is the William B. Hacker Head of Reader Services at the Boston Athenaeum, where she started her professional career as a reference librarian in 2002 and her professional interests lie in ergonomics of library services design and readers' advisory techniques. So without further ado, let's start with Juliet Floyd. Thank you very much, Will, and thank you all for coming. I do hope uh, people will feel free to come down to the BPL tonight where there will be an initial talk uh, given and um, we invite the public and we're very happy that the BU Center for Humanities has reached out to my wonderful panelists who I've already enjoyed talking to. So I'm going to be very quick, lightning speed, uh, and the title of my talk is The Cultural Search, which is a phrase I take from Alan Turing, with whom you may not associate the notion of culture, but I'm going to argue that philosophy was very important to him. So I'm going to read you a quote from the founding document of Artificial Intelligence, which was written in 1948. And I think you do have to read this quote very carefully to understand that he studied a lot of philosophy and that he was looking forward to an age of the digital humanities uh, in ways people might be surprised by. He first says, we're justified in saying that we have to some extent confirmed the idea that intellectual activity consists mainly of various kinds of searching and maybe not only Google searching. We might arrange to take all possible arrangements of choices in order and go on until the machine proved a theorem which by its form could be verified to give a solution. Further research into the intelligence of machinery will probably be very greatly concerned 
With searches of this kind, we may call them intellectual searches. But there are two other kinds of search he mentions. There is the genetical or evolutionary search by which a combination of genes is looked for, the criterion being survival value. The remarkable success of this search confirms to some extent the idea that intellectual activity consists mainly of various kinds of search. But finally, we have the cultural search. There are no machines that are part of this in Turing's vision. The remaining form of search is what I should like to call the cultural search. The isolated man does not develop any intellectual power. It's necessary for him to be immersed in an environment of other men whose techniques he absorbs during the first 20 years of his life. He may then perhaps do a little research of his own and make a very few discoveries which are passed on to others. From this point of view, the search for new techniques must be regarded as carried out by the human community as a whole rather than individuals. This proves to me that he was reading Peirce and other American philosophers, but that would be a, a side point. So I'm very inspired by this, and I'm currently writing a book on Turing and Wittgenstein and Kurt Gödel, uh, emphasizing that we wouldn't have the notion of a Turing machine without his study of philosophy. And uh, as part of this, we wrote a grant at BU uh, to the Mellon Foundation, and we are very, very grateful that they funded us for this year to set up a very temporary center, and we will be organizing 12 public lectures. Two have already happened in the spring. These are to investigate the ethics, the philosophy, the changes going on with new media saturating everyday life. So I hope everyone will free, feel free to come. I've secured the new Silsi building at BU on Commonwealth Avenue, which is a gorgeous European building, with style building with glass walls, and we have free receptions. So we really, I think the Mellon Foundation wanted to give the humanities a voice in this digital world, and we feel uh, the importance of this, and they would like us to include as many area institutions as possible. So please feel free to come, and I'm simply gonna share with you in my remaining time the posters from sessions that we have run and will run. Um, here's the overall uh, listing. Uh, we do have a website, uh, www.melonfilemerge.com. Uh, upcoming will be a, a lecture by Professor Sandra Logier from Paris, Philosophy of Popular Culture, Skepticism in Ordinary Life. Uh, we will be adding two more next spring. Uh, one on the study of futures, how do we reason about the long-scale future and the short-term future, and another on human plasticity and human-machine interface. So October will be popular culture and skepticism. We had an event, Journalism and the Search for Truth, uh, during the runoff to the French election last spring. It was on fake news. We planned that before the election, before fake news became a matter of uh, obsession with the public space and our notions of truth. So a volume will be appearing from that as well, and it was live streamed, and we have a website for that one. Philosophical Platforms happened just last week. There we got together the people who have digitized the NAFLAS, that is the complete papers and correspondence of Hannah Arendt, Nietzsche, and Wittgenstein. They know each other and are trying to build computational platforms in which you can check the genetic evolution of a particular remark of Nietzsche's or Wittgenstein, compare it with what Nietzsche said or what Hannah Arendt said. So this is very forward-looking. We had to discuss philosophical questions like what is a text, what is a document, uh, how do we preserve the diversity of interpretations in a world mediated by these philosophical platforms. So 
that was uh, really a wonderful event, and um, I think I'm out of my five minutes, so perhaps I'll just stop here. Thank you. Thanks for coming out, everyone. Um, I'm Jeff Cooper. I am the director of New England's Hidden Histories, a project of the Congregational Library, which is right next door. Um, New England's Hidden Histories uh, is um, designed to secure, when we can, um, archive, uh, digitize, transcribe, and place online New England's earliest manuscript church records. Um, in early New England communities, virtually everything that went on at one point or another passed through the doors of the local church. Uh, if you were involved in a dispute with your neighbor, you weren't supposed to bring that person to court, uh, you brought it up with the minister or, if need be, uh, the entire church. The uh, most important decisions that ordinary folks made in the 1600s and in the 1700s here in New England were decisions that they uh, reached in church, so by studying church records we can learn a great deal uh, about the political culture uh, of the time. Uh, one thing I found over the course of my research was that even though these records are immensely valuable, not many people were using them. And not many people were using them because uh, they are simply inaccessible. They're scattered all over New England in uh, local churches, small libraries, uh, small uh, historical societies. So that was um, one main reason for digitization, to uh, increase accessibility of these extremely valuable um, uh, uh, documents. And one way that our project might be a little bit different from other ones is that it, it does pertain to the fact that these documents are located all over the place. In other words, in getting these records together and getting them online, we're not saving scholars a trip or a series of trips to the Massachusetts Historical Society. It means that they do not have to spend months hunting and gathering um, all over uh, New England. We are also digitizing because it, uh, is, uh, it provides a means of um, preservation. Um, a lot of the records we take in go, end up going back to the, back to the churches and um, frankly we often find them in rather deplorable conditions in attics and basements and the minister's uh, uh, coat closet, and they're in great danger of fire, theft, uh, simply getting lost. So it is, uh, we take some comfort when we have them um, at least um, uh, digitized. Uh, I wanted to share a couple of things about the project that might be of um, use to um, those of you who are yourselves involved in digital projects or have an interest in digital uh, uh, projects. 
the Congregational Library is not a, a quote-unquote large institution. We are not um, uh, Harvard, but that doesn't mean that you can't have a successful digitization project. It did take us years uh, to get some uh, traction. You do have to be prepared to explain why what you're doing is important, and uh, you just have to keep after it. Um, if, if the material you're working with is, um, is valuable, I have learned that you just can't be uh, bashful. Um, working on this project for years, I thought, well, these records are of interest to me, and they're of interest to our director, Peggy Bendroth, and some of my friends, but, you know, we're kind of a unique breed of history nerd. Um, I don't know that anyone else would be interested in these documents. Um, the next thing I know, our project is on the front page of the New York Times because the editors think that everyone is going to be uh, interested in this uh, project. And um, we've ended up with grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities and from the uh, uh, Mellon Foundation. We are still sort of feeling our way uh, along. The technology continues to change uh, rapidly. And I uh, was speaking with some of the other panel members. Um, sometimes when the humanities people are talking with the tech people, it's like they're speaking different languages. So <laughs> if you're experiencing this, uh, you're not alone. Um, a final point I wanted to make is that we have benefited tremendously uh, by uh, partnering with other institutions that are larger and more experienced. The Jonathan Edwards Center um, down at Yale University has done almost everything that we want to do. They've taken manuscripts, they've digitized them, they've transcribed them, they've put them online. Um, why not approach them and benefit from what they've learned and all of their experience. And there's a certain overlap in what we're trying to do and, and um, casting light on colonial New England uh, religion and obviously what they're doing. So why not explore the possibility of a partnership with them? Um, there were naysayers who suggested that other scholarly institutions and archives probably would not be interested in assisting New England's hidden histories because they have their own agendas. They might even see us as competition uh, or whatever. I found that to be um, categorically false. Uh, I, I can't say that all these institutions are uh, throwing money at us or anything like that, but um, other institutions like the American Antiquarian Society, the Historic Genealogical Society, the Connecticut Historical Society, virtually everyone that we've approached, um, they have assisted us um, in, um, in getting grants. Uh, they have um, assisted us in, um, with matters of um, publicity. Uh, the American Antiquarian Society has offered to let us use equipment uh, that they have uh, for free. Uh, so bear that in mind uh, also as you, uh, as you pursue uh, your digital endeavors. Uh, and I hope that those hints are helpful to some of you. Thanks.
Good afternoon. Um, I'm Sarah Goldberg. I'm an archivist at uh, Historic Newton, the Jackson Homestead Museum. Um, as um, an archivist, many of the projects that I get involved with are because someone has realized, usually at the last minute, um, that there's an anniversary looming and that it should be, it should be recognized. Um, in 2013, uh, we were two years into the sesquicentennial, or the 150th anniversary of the Civil War, and Newton, as far as I could tell, didn't have anything planned. Um, for that anniversary. I opened my big mouth because I had collections of Civil War material that I thought, if it's ever going to see the light of day, this would be the time to bring it out. Um, and so a number of stars aligned, and a bunch of city departments actually came to an agreement. Um, and that was um, the decision to do a rededication of our Civil War monument. Um, a monument owned by the city, but located in Newton's, at the privately owned Newton Cemetery. The Newton Civil War Monument um, is the second one in the state to have been erected prior to the end of the Civil War um, and is eligible for placement on the National Register. Uh, the cemetery and the city started talking about what an anniversary recognition would look like, um, and how, in addition to a rededication ceremony, we could add another layer of education um, in recognition of Newton's role in the war and to honor the men who had given their lives. Our first thought was uh, that the day of the ceremony, we could hand out a physical map um, that people could give themselves a, a tour of the cemetery and the locations of um, you can't really see it on that picture, but on the, on the two end tablets of the entablature there are inscribed the names of the men whose lives had been lost prior to the end of the war. Um, some of them are, have other markers on the grounds, and so that's what this map would have done. But we um, wanted to know what else we could do. So our second thought was an online story map so that all of the information that we gathered about these individuals could um, be accessed after the ceremony uh, to a greater number of people. Um, but who was going to do this? As luck would have it, our answer came in the form of a group of young women and their newly formed Plant to Smile 4-H club. Um, the theme for 4-H that year was um, there was a focus on STEM education. So this group happily um, took the opportunity to add a technology uh, project to their goals for the year. Uh, how were we going to make this happen? So these were the collaborating <coughs> institutions. <coughs> Excuse me. The 4-H group applied for uh, and was awarded a grant from ESRI um, to purchase ArcGIS and story mapping software that they would need. Uh, the cemetery already had a handheld GPS device, um, so using the longitude and latitude song that they had just learned in school, um, the 4-Hers were able to start collecting data about the location of the monuments in the cemetery. The, the next step, of course, was to head off to the Arnold Arboretum for um, software training, because that's what you do there, right? 
um, they happened to be using the same software that the girls uh, needed some training on and were very happy to host um, this group. Uh, after they knew how to use the software, they did research using uh, records at the cemetery, archival materials at the Jackson Homestead, veterans records in the city archives, and histories at the Newton Library. And the result of that was this. The map on your right um, acts as your tour guide through the cemetery and clicking on any of those numbers there will bring up a box um, that you see there that took information directly from the veterans lot cards that were held in the city archives. Um, the scrolling sidebar on the left um, was an opportunity for us to incorporate photographs, images, um, transcriptions of manuscript material, um, other information that, that the students gathered around where the soldier or sailor lived, uh, what he was doing prior to enlistment. So all of this information can, can be found there online um, through the cemetery's website. Uh, this worked so well that they have gone on to do um, to work with uh, local high school students, um, a local author, and even the arborist at the cemetery uh, has done his own online tree tour. Hello, uh, my name is Ashley Gray. I am the archivist at the Handel and Haydn Society in a digital projects assistant at the BSO, but today I'm talking about the Handel and Haydn Society. Um, if you're unfamiliar with our organization, I'll tell you about us. Uh, we were originally founded in 1815 as an amateur choral society, uh, but today we are a period orchestra and chorus uh, considered to be the country's oldest continually performing arts organization. Um, our mission is to enrich life through the performance of Baroque and classical music, and we specialize in historically informed performance using the instruments and techniques um, of the composer's time. And the other part of our identity is an education program. Um, we're dedicated to providing uh, music instruction and training activities, and our program reaches about 10,000 students in the greater Boston area through youth choirs, musicianship programs, outreach performances, in-school music instruction as well. Um, so as archivist for this society, my job is to collect, preserve, and pri provide access to about 200 years worth of material um, pertaining not just only to our own performance activities, but the arts landscape of Boston dating from the early 19th century. And uh, what that means is we have a lot of stuff, <laughs> and it's performance records, uh, concert material, business records, photographs, audiovisual material, scrapbooks, newspaper clippings, um, lots and lots of stuff. And because we are a, an active organization, we're not primarily a collecting or research repository, um, thinking about digital materials, whether that's material we want to make digital or is in essence digital to start with, um, we're thinking about um, reflecting and sustaining what we do day in and day out, as well as the needs and interests of researchers, the general public, our patrons. Um, for us, there's a direct line between today's output, um, which is physical and digital, but increasingly the digital's outpacing our physical output. That, 
and then what becomes the historical record. Um, so for us to be thinking about how we're going to share our materials, um, how we're going to keep using them ourselves, and how we're going to make sure they're accessible in the future, um, we have to think about it, um, making sure we have the ability to curate that content pretty much from the moment that we're creating it. And so what's made the most sense for us, um, I've been working on this, thinking about this for two years, is an inside-out approach, essentially. And my analogy, I speak in metaphor, so you'll have to forgive me, is kind of like when company is coming over, you've got two choices about how to handle your mess. You can do what we did in my house growing up, which is shove it all into closets and restrict your guests to the one genuinely presentable room. Or you can adopt better housekeeping practices, which takes longer, um, but ultimately allows you to open up your home more and more regularly. So that's what we've decided to do, and I'm really excited because the Handel and Haydn Society is investing in this very shiny looking uh, digital asset management software called Preservica, which provides the back-end system to preserve and manage the digital assets of our organization, but will also allow us to create an access portal that will ultimately be how um, both internal and external users can access our content online the digital stuff, both digitized material and born digital material. Um, this is easier said than done. There's been a lot of planning, and instead of giving you a sales pitch about what Preservica does or doesn't do, I mostly just wanted to highlight the rationale that um, has driven our approach. Uh, namely, that to make our content accessible uh, in any meaningful way to any constituent, uh, internal or external, um, we had to pretty much admit that the shiny button you push where you get to access the collection is really, again, a metaphor, just the tip of the iceberg. Um, that we can't just slap content on the website um, and say, ta-da, it's a digital collection. Um, the world of digital objects is really not stable enough for that. So here's my cool art, guys. Um, <laughs> Below the waterline is all the stuff that we are currently thinking about and building. Um, and that's why it's taken so long, and that's why I don't have a really cool, shiny interface to show you, because it's still a work in progress. But I'm really excited, and I think it's going to be um, a sustainable program, um, both for um, internal workflows and what the public ultimately will get to see. So, thank you. I'm so impressed by our colleagues. Thank you for all your good and passionate work. Thank you, Will and Deborah, for putting this program together, and Juliet for your groundbreaking work at BU. It's, it's just thrilling to talk with you all. So good afternoon. I'm Meg Winslow. I work as curator of historical collections at Mount Auburn Cemetery, a very uh, beautiful place to be on a day like this. So uh, please come visit. In 1831, Mount Auburn was established in Cambridge and Watertown with the purpose of burying the dead and commemorating the dead and providing comfort and inspiration to the living in a designed landscape of exceptional beauty. Today, the cemetery continues its sacred purpose of burying and cremating, um, but it's also a vibrant community resource 
It's a national historic landmark, an internationally renowned arboretum and botanical garden, an important uh, birding site, a, uh, an outdoor museum of art and architecture, and a natural oasis in an urban environment. You may assume that our collections contain only dusty burial records, which it does, nearly 100,000 uh, records for nearly 100,000 individuals buried at Mount Auburn. But as curator of historical collections, it's my privilege to oversee and provide access to the cemetery's permanent collections of institutional archives, library, photograph collections, collection of art, ephemera, and significant monuments, and to work with staff and family, families and, and researchers. In 2013, Mount Auburn Cemetery was the first cemetery in the nation to receive a Museum for America's grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to study, document, and disseminate information about 30 of our most significant outdoor funerary monuments, along with research, cataloging, documentation, digital capture, of primary documents was an essential component of this grant. To begin with, we searched the archives for content mostly unknown to historians and scholars until the end of this grant, until now. Uh, correspondence between families in the cemeteries, deeds, trustee minutes, committee records, trustees' correspondence, superintendent's correspondence, uh, committee records, work orders, art prints, ephemera, field book sketches. Uh, and in the library, we look through press clippings, historic guidebooks, and reference books on 19th century sculpture and garden cemeteries. And lastly, we search the over 20,000 images in the photograph collections. The project was straightforward and linear beginning in December 2013 and ending in November 2014, actually with two days of work from a very committed volunteer, we created 2,219 digital files in-house from primary sources in the historical collections. That same year, with funds from a donor, which is essential to all of our work and to my work at Mount Auburn, we outsourced digital capture of 700 historic photographs of the 30 monuments in a variety of formats. Oops, I missed, a, missed an image there. Um, including a stereo view uh, like this one of the Harnden Monument with uh, the ladies at the dedication. Uh, cabinet cards, lantern slides, silver gelatin prints. The digital capture itself went smoothly and quickly with no unforeseen challenges. Each digital file was tagged and organized and filed. To create improved access, I created central digital files for materials relating to each monument maker and person commemorated. I also created a digital file schema for subject headings um, that will be used from this point forward. And with the project completion, the new digital files containing new information about the significant monuments were used on the cemetery website 
in a one-day seminar, in documentary videos, public programs, an online exhibit, and a print publication. But what were the challenges? One, from the start, the biggest challenge was difficulty of access to both the physical and the digital collections. The cemetery's physical collections are dispersed, a little bit like they are here at, at the Athenaeum, but with, um, I think we had th three separate buildings. They were stored in offices, vaults, hallways, climate control storage. Two, with no digital asset management program in place, only very few centralized search tools or finding aids existed for the digital collections, which are located in separate departmental files throughout the cemetery's computer network. And three, we confirmed once again that ingesting digital files into the collection and tagging each one of them consistently takes at least twice the time or more that you estimated. In conclusion, with the award of the IMLS grant and the recognition of the cemetery as a museum with collections, and with this specific, seemingly simple, very linear project, there has been a shift of perception about Mount Auburn both internally on the part of our staff, staff and trustees and with the public, with primary resources relating to the monuments now digitized and cataloged, our staff has been able to engage the public in a much deeper way around, particularly around preservation of the significant monument collection that we had uh, not ever been able to do in the past. And lastly, we're particularly thrilled that one of the most important collections, one of the most important outcomes of this digital project is greatly improved access to Mount Auburn's historical collections. Thank you. I'm Mary Warneman, William D. Hacker, Head of Reader Services here at the Athenaeum. Uh, um, Membership Library founded in 1807 and preserving and promoting culture and arts in Boston ever since. Uh, I share no pretty pictures in my slides because you're in our wonderful space. Um, the project I present today is one among many that I uh, have been undertaken which requires the coordination of librarians across many departments, tech services, reader services, digital programs, as well as the curators, conservators, systems professionals, and development staff. Uh, after many small projects, often in collaboration with other institutions, in 2006 we undertook a, a major digital project and established a department. Uh, in 2012, we secured a grant to digitize our Confederate imprints collection, which paid for a larger space rented next door, more equipment, and a content management system with which to make it accessible uh, to the public. We selected Content DM, an OCLC product, because um, it claimed to offer what we wanted. Um, we were familiar with OCLC and figured it would work well with our ILS, our catalog, and um, as well as make our items discoverable in search engines. 
Um, we've got a full-time librarian and one to three uh, library science graduate students interning in the department as of now. Um, I begged to digitize the Boston Directory. It is not something that you're going to display in an exhibition case. It's not going to illustrate very many textbooks, but it includes a lot of information about average people, average Bostonians. Um, our own catalogers use them to help with establishing standard naming and authority records. Um, home and work addresses are included. Occupations are often listed. The classifieds can provide a whole history of a business. Um, for a certain period, people of color were listed separately. For another period, you got a reverse street directory. It's just um, a wealth of information in these very used volumes. Um, and they're used by the sophisticated as well as the novice researcher by scholars and genealogists. Uh, the curator of rare books um, agreed that this was important. Um, the photo you see ahead of you shows their condition. They are fragile. Many spines are broken. They, they were loved. They were used. And uh, we uh, decided against our usual policy to um, not conserve the items. Typically, before digitization and after, items are going to go to conservation. Um, we decided instead that we'd handle them carefully. We would then put them right back on the shelves where people can see them in the reference stacks. The um, materials we hope are displayed in a sensible manner, A to Z, by category, or everything. Um, each collection has an introductory page. Uh, it's very small for me to get it all on one page. We describe the history of the directories and, of course, credit the donor who supported this particular project. The metadata used in Content DM is the same as we use in our online catalog. However, we link between the two because only a small fraction is digitized. We direct researchers first to our online catalog where they will get more results. But we know that some people enter through a search engine, and some people simply want results that have images. That's all they're looking for. Uh, part of the challenge associated with the directories is um, the uh, name changing and complicated uh, cataloging. You know, you call it the Boston Directory, but there are, at the bottom there, those range are the various entries that are included. Uh, when you click on view the collection, you're going to see all of the years listed. If you click on a year, 1789, the first, you see here we've got the page flip or download options. Page flip is very familiar, looks like what you would see if you were sitting at the table, nice little corner there that can flip open. Uh, I could not get a screenshot of everything, so here's the bottom half of the screen to prove that our catalogers' hard work is in fact supporting this, um, all of the searching. Uh, the find function works whether you choose page flip or download. I admit I prefer download. It's a little faster, and then you can conveniently print out just a portion that, that you or your researcher wants. Um, it's printed material, so it, it, it's OCR'd. You can search it, but it's not, in, it's not incredibly 100% reliable, and so I always warn people to, to be wary of that. Um, of course, from the main page, you can search within the results. However, I don't recommend it. It's not robust searching. Um, when you try to search multiple um, items, you're, you're going you're gonna to be frustrated more often than not. I know I would love it, but um, you've got to be realistic. And 
The search, I, I, you can see barely there by the red, Athenaeum points to another problem that we warn people about. Athenaeum itself contains a ligature. It's an obscure sort of typographic symbol that you don't often see, and it's not always going to be found, although I have to say, in 1827, it was finding it. Um, this is a curious fact. We uh, were listed for years under the librarian's name rather than under our institutional name um, in uh, we did that until the 1930s. Um, the other big problem, really the biggest problem of all, uh, the size of the files. As the decades passed in Boston and Boston grew, so did the directory grow. And so if I were to choose, say, 1889, this is often what you see for, for what seems a long, long time. In this day and age, we're used to clicking and it being there. But even so, I sometimes get impatient and I just get up and walk across the room and read it uh, from one of those fragile volumes and reshelve it and go back to my desk and it is still doing this. Uh, as the 21st century passes though, that problem will be resolved, I am, I am sure. Uh, I mentioned that we chose Content DM for its discoverability uh, in internet searches. Here you see uh, Google and DuckDuckGo. Uh, we're right there at the top um, in both of those search engines. Wikipedia, of course, is there near the top as well. And so I point out, we link from Wikipedia entries for the Boston Directory to make it, it easy for people who are trying to find it, all of those various states, and we do that anytime anything we digitize is gonna have an entry in that popular online reference source. Um, we stopped at the year 1900 because uh, it was convenient. Um, however, the Copyright does not apply to directories information, and so we can continue on, and we plan to do so. Um, and uh, we hope that you and, and other researchers find it helpful. Thank you for listening. <laughs>